Well, let's get rolling. We are going to pick up where we left off. Now, the last couple of weeks have been a little bit different, but I felt it was important. Now, remember what we've been talking about, the concept of the new man. The new man is who we are in Christ. When one is born again, they become this new man. They, the old is gone, the new has come. We still have the flesh that we deal with, and it, the Bible talks about crucifying that. But as far as being righteous, made right with God, you're as righteous as you're ever going to be. You, there are not levels of righteousness. You can't go and do things. Um, I remember years ago somebody telling me, it's like, the better you get at the fruit of the Spirit, the closer to God you are. Which is wrong, right? The truth is, the closer to God you get, the more the fruit of the Spirit will come out to play. But the thing that we do so often is we try to earn righteousness after we've been given righteousness, right? So think about it this way. If somebody comes up and gives me a $100 bill, am I going to turn around and go try to earn it after that? No, you've already given it to me, right? It's now mine. Right, Katie? You know what I'm saying? Bingo winnings. Yeah, whatever. It's my fault. It's always my fault. So, anyway. So, as we go into this, we've got to understand, and that's the thing, who we are in Christ. And the key part to that is in Christ. Because you can be somebody, but if you're not in Christ, then you're not right with God. How do you become right with God? You are simply born again. It's very simple. It's not complicated. We complicate it. The church has complicated. People complicated. Unbelievers complicated. As you guys have heard with the last couple of weeks, talking about these different beliefs that are out there that are being taught, is that we get this idea that, oh, I believe in God, therefore I'm right with God. Or I'm American, therefore I'm Christian. It's kind of the rules. One of the arguments I have, I do a lot of apologetics with people saying that, well, okay, you were born in America, therefore you believe in Christ and in Christianity and all of that. But if you were born in another nation like where Islam is ruling, then you would be Islamic. Is that true? No. Why is that? It's possibly true. The influence of Islam would be a lot greater there. But we have to remember what Christianity is. It was birthed out of Judaism, and it was very volatile. It was not all of a sudden that all the Jews are like, oh, yes, let's all become Christians. That's not what they said, right? It was in a series, it was, it was in response to um, persecution and hatred and all of that. You read about a guy named Saul that goes around trying to kill these followers of the way. Remember, Christian's really not in the Bible. That's a term that was given to him. It's used three times. That's it. But they, the followers of, of Jesus, followers of the way, it was birthed out of persecution. So just because you're born somewhere does not mean you're naturally going to follow that. It's a more likelihood, but of course that's not the end-all be-all. But what we had to look at is how we know how the enemy works. Because with this new man becomes a responsibility. One of those responsibilities is to go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations. Okay? But if we are the hands and feet of Christ, then we have a responsibility to do. And we have to know the authority of which we do that in. Okay? You can say the name of Jesus all you want, but if that name does not provide authority to you, it means nothing, right? So it, it's one of those things that we had to know how the enemy works. And we started looking at who he was, what he looked like, what his name was, when he fell, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him. We started looking at all of that. And then we morphed over into the side of how he operates. And the one way that he operates is through people. And we've looked at those verses where it talks about how God works through people, and so does the enemy. Now, we always seem to think if somebody comes against us, that they must be working, you know, with the power of the devil. Sometimes we're just wrong. Sometimes our thoughts are wrong, our words are wrong, our beliefs are wrong. So it's not necessarily the devil. Sometimes it's just conviction. But he works through people. And so let's, let's jump into the scriptures here real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read these the last two weeks. I'm going to read two passages here again, and then we're going to pick up where we left off. It says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you, who is you? Timothy. Never forget who he's writing this to. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and in his kingdom. He says to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, Exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Guys, we could do a series on this passage and nothing else because there's so much in here. First of all, Mr. Timothy, pastor over Ephesus, what are you to preach? The word. Not your opinion. Preach the word. Not how to have your best life now. Not how to have a happy marriage in three weeks or less. It is to preach the word of God. If we can just fill our lives with the word of God, with the leading of the Holy Spirit, everything else will take care of itself. 
We don't do that. We preach everything else. We're treating so many different symptoms, we never get to the cause. If we would work on the cause, then the symptoms will go away. No different politically. Yes, we need to vote. We need to pray. But don't think a president, a congressman is going to solve your problems. Our problem in America is not just bad politics. It's a lack of Christ. If we would preach Christ, the rest of this stuff will take care of itself. I'm getting on a soapbox. Let's go on. Preach the word. He says you need to be ready in season and out of season. You know what that is? All the time. There's never a time you shouldn't be ready to preach here we go. He says you need to convince them, you need to rebuke them, you need to exhort them, and you need to do it all with long-suffering and teaching. In other words, convince them of the truth, rebuke them in their era, errors, and lift them up, encourage them when they're right, and prepare because it's going to be frustrating. But always be teaching. We've gotten away from that. And then he goes into the part that is so obvious. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, they have, because they have itching ears. Have we reached that time? Has that time come? Oh, yeah, and this was 2,000 years ago. Guess what? The time came then, the time came after then, and after then, and here we are still today. But what do they do with these itching ears? They heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to the fables. What's the truth? The Word of God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. In other words, if it's not here, then it's not true. It's based in truth. He is truth. So they're going to turn away from that, and they're going to go to all these other things that are out there. So the key part there, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And what do these teachers tell them? What they want to hear. Is that good parenting? Nope. You give your kid everything they want? Nope. You give them everything they need? Sometimes? Not always. Maybe they don't need that. It's like my son the other night. He said, can I have a tropical snow? I said, sure. He's like, can I have a candy bar? I said, sure. Then he said, can I go vomit? I said, sure. Just not in the car. That's true. He laid in the trailer and was stretching. Yeah. But what do we see that they do? They gather themselves teachers. Oh, okay. I'm going to go to where I feel comfortable. I'm going to go listen to this guy because he says things that I like. If those of you that have been around the Word of Faith movement and things like that back in the 90s, remember this. What was it? It's all about money. All about prosperity. And we would run to these guys like, oh, man, that's great, you know, and all of that. And it was getting off into things. Prosperity is good. It's of God. But the mechanisms and the way that we were going about it, not necessarily. We chase after these guys. You've heard of guys that chase in prophet. This guy's a prophet of God. I need a word from the Lord. Well, first of all, you need the word of the Lord. And then from there, maybe something specific. So we started here in Timothy. He's getting on Timothy. Tell him. Then we jumped into Acts chapter 20. Verse 27. It says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That's pretty much everything, right? Not much left out. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Now remember, he is talking to the elders of all the churches. He, Paul has called all these guys together. He says, Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You could put, put pastor in there if you wanted. To shepherd the church. What is the church? It's the body of God, the Christ, body of Christ, right? The ecclesia. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Therefore, who does that belong to? Who bought it? Jesus did, right? He purchased it with his blood. Does it belong to you? No, you're an overseer of it. Therefore, you take care of it, but it's not yours. So you're responsible for it, but you don't own it. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Savage wolves. Think about the, the analogy of the, the shepherd, the sheep, the flock, and wolves. Are wolves and sheep, do they like get along real well? No. One likes the other a lot more than the other way around, right? One of them thinks they're delicious. One of them thinks they're scary. Okay? But where do the wolves come from? Among them. The overseers, the shepherds, it's, it's, from you, will, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. These are people of God, is what it is saying, who will rise up and they will draw men to themselves. How do they do that? With the words they say, with their teaching. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He kept warning them, guys, this is going to happen. 
And you know what's crazy? Is it happens to people that we know. We have seen people, if you've been in this game for any amount of time and followed, you know, big name preachers, if you will, you have seen people rise and fall and rise and fall. And they may have been straight-laced and had great doctrine or preaching the Word, and then they start getting off into these different areas. You can trace it all through, hi- uh, through history. Many of you guys have heard of an evangelist named William Branham way back in, uh, I think he was in the 40s and the 50s. He had a healing ministry like no other. People got healed. There was no fluff. It was just pretty much, what's wrong with you? My leg hurts. Okay, in Jesus' name be healed. How's your leg feel? Oh, it's great. All right, have a nice day. Who's next? I mean, it wasn't to the pomp and circumstance that we have today. He wasn't taking up massive offerings, and he would have this ability to just see into your life, and the Lord would open these things like these words of knowledge to you that he would be able to even tell you your address. And these are the days where technology wasn't there. You could fake this. I mean, mighty man of God who began to get off because he convinced himself that he became Elijah reincarnated. And as well as many, many, many other things. Yeah, it's crazy, right? But here's a guy that was straight-laced, preaching the word, going out and doing all things, and then he got off. And then there was a sect of followers called the Branamites who every year would go to his grave waiting for him to resurrect. And well, last I've been told, there are still a few around today. I mean, this was a long time ago, but this goes on. It happens all the time. We see it in our day. And as I was telling you last week with these four people that we introduced to you, some of you guys were familiar. Go ahead and put that up. Some of you guys knew who these guys were, some of you didn't, okay? You've got Carlton Pearson, Eugene Peterson, Rob Bell, and Paul Young. Now these people, I would say, are probably born again. I don't know, I, you know, I don't know them personally, so I can never say that. But I was talking about Carlton Pearson, that was a, a pastor of a church of about five or 6,000 in Tulsa when I was going to Ramah. And this whole thing falls out that he got into this universalist mindset to where, you know, you don't have to be born again. Christ died for all. There is no such thing as eternal punishment like hell, like we call it. You know, God's uh, chastisement is retributive. It is not to destroy you, but it's to bring you into correction with him. And so this whole idea of like, hey, it doesn't matter what you do, where you're at, what you believe, or if lack of belief, you're going to heaven. Okay. Then out of him comes this Rob Bell guy who was up in Michigan pastoring a church that took that idea to a step further and has grown a massive following all over the world. And you know who the biggest followers of him are? It's not the church. It's the unbelievers. Why? Because they heap up for themselves teachers because they have itching ears who's telling them what they want to hear. It's okay. You do whatever you want. Your behavior has nothing to do with it. It's not sin. God made you this way. He loves you. Then you got Eugene Peter, this is the guy that wrote the paraphrase of the Message Bible, which some of us read and some of us like, and I'm not telling you not to. It's, it's, it's okay. Um, but endorses his book and endorses him, which is a concern. And then, of course, Paul Young, the writer of The Shack. Many of you may have read or seen that. Again, if you can read a book or go see a movie and not look at theological implications, you're fine, right? I mean, going to see that movie is no different than going to see Ant-Man and Wasp or whatever, you know, whatever floats your boat, okay? Just make sure you get popcorn and a Diet Coke. That's the only thing that will make it holy. So, so anyway, so he writes this book, and, but the problem is, is, is in our culture, most of our theological thoughts and implications, whether we realize it or not, are influenced not by the Bible, but by books and by movies and by preachers. And we don't realize that, but there's so many thoughts that we have in the body of Christ today that have nothing to do with the Bible. They're not biblical. Remember, we talked about hell and angels, realizing that hell was more influenced by a book called Dante's Inferno than anything else. Not by the Bible. If you notice, the Bible's pretty vague. It's not very specific. It's very vague on hell. So I was showing you guys how these things and these thoughts and ideas have influenced today's church And they are of their father, the devil. Remember Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. And Janet was talking about this this morning. How they're of their father, the devil. And these guys get in there and they start teaching this falsehood. And they draw for themselves disciples. Hey, come over here. Come over to this camp. Right? That's what they do. Well, I was sharing with you guys some of the influence they've had on other people's lives. Um, People that I've known. I showed you a book that was written by a guy that I graduated from Ramah with. Um, I'm going to read you now a message, a a, a quick interchange that I had with another uh, graduate. This young man uh, was from Wisconsin. His dad had pastored a church for about 30 years. He he and I went to Ramah together. That's where I met him. And um, he 
There was one day, I, I usually put like Bible verses up on Facebook or things along those lines, and, and I put that verse out of Peter that says, be holy for I am holy. And he commented on it, and I can't remember what it was because this was four years ago. The comment was very odd to me. I couldn't, I, like, I wasn't following what he was trying to say. And the premise was is that, well, you don't need to be holy because you are holy because God said you are. So you can't, and there's some truth in that, right? We are holy because God said it. But what he was getting at is that it's okay, it doesn't matter what you believe. This universalist mindset is ultimately where he was getting to. And so um, trying to be cordial and trying to understand where he was coming from to make sure I wasn't implying something to him, I asked him, I said, okay, th it sounds like you believe in this universalism idea, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. And we'd gone back and forth, and, and he ended up private messaging me, and I'm going to read you that here in a minute. But let me tell you where the premise was that he was going to. He would found this guy, and, and you'll hear about him in a minute, who had talked about the early church and how the early church was universalist, and he can back it up with uh, proof text, um, ancient writings, things like that. But one of the things that he had said is that we can't trust anything but the writings of Paul, and the reason for that is because Jesus chose disciples, apostles, whatever you want to call them, who didn't know how to read and write. Okay? Is that true? No, it's not true. Of course it's not true. In other words, that the writings are there might have some truth in them, but we can't accurately reflect them. So how would we know that? Well, we can go back and trace that stuff. So I sent him this, and so this is the message. And I want you guys to hear this, and I want you to hear where he's coming from, because this is what has influenced the church today. His name was Ray. He says, hey, Chris, first of all, thank you for not being accusatory or inflammatory in your response. Most of the time, that is not the case. When I comment on discussions such as these, as you may have guessed, I have left my evangelical and word of faith roots. I didn't want to say that in an open thread on Facebook for fear some of your younger followers may be injured in some way. The beginning of the shift started in my undergraduate studies in history. Okay? Now, I want you to watch what happens, but I also want you to watch why there is such a tension here. Because this is the problem we have. I used my upper division level courses to study religion, religious philosophy, and church history. Those bad things. Any of those bad? Nope. Nothing wrong with those. All of which my denomination, which would be the word of faith, which is what we would call ourselves if you are going to pick something, told me was bad and not of the Spirit. Now why would they make that statement? Why is it bad to study church history, religious philosophy, any of that stuff? Why were they telling him it was bad and it's not of the Spirit? Because a lot in our camp are not moved by doctrine as far as Scripture. They're moved by experience. We have to have, a, our experience have to be grounded in something. Okay? This is part of the problem. He said, but I couldn't help it. I loved history. And it started me through a process by which I would begin to question my belief system pertaining to my personal faith. You see, I was raised by a word of faith, a Haga, Rama, Copeland, or whatever you want to call it, Pentecostal preacher since I was a child. And taking a non-spirit-led approach to biblical learning was just not allowed, and it was very much frowned upon. It was difficult for me to even study my religious studies because I still filtered everything through my denominational lens. It was very confusing. Everything that I had studied in college seemed to contradict uh, what I thought was true about the Bible, Jesus and Christianity overall. So then after college, I enrolled in Rhema. I thought that I was called to preach and pastor. I found out very early in college that I was an excellent orator and preacher and that I could move audiences. And that proved also to be the case at Rhema. It was said that I was being groomed to take over my father's church. And even when I returned home to pastor in my dad's church, many of the members told me outright that they don't want to listen to my dad. Instead, they want me to pastor the church. That's the beginning of a very bad recipe here. That was frightening. While at Rhema, though, there still was an inner conflict in me. At Rhema, I would not read any of the assigned readings because I was still so caught up in the study of the works of Martin Luther, the Reformers, and even those who are the Orthodox Church labeled as heretics. I'm not sure who he's referencing there. In the midst of all of this whole controversy surrounding Bishop Carlton Pearson broke out. Interestingly, prior to this controversy, I would attend his church and I loved it. He always taught on subjects that were engaging. I would later switch to Willie George's church at my mother's request, which was church on the move down there in Tulsa. Uh, I loved it there too. So one day, my roommate, who was a Ramagrad, who was a member of Bishop Pearson's church, came home ecstatic on what he had heard that day in service. And that was the last straw. He came home and said that he had just listened to one of the greatest messages he had ever heard. It was from a guest speaker by the name of Mike Williams. He would bring 
uh, he would bring back the video recording of that service, and my life would never be the same. You see, Mike Williams is a former Word of Faith preacher, a former Norval Hayes protege, for those of you who know Norval is. Okay, he's been around for many, many years. I'm assuming he's still around. I don't actually know that. Um, and close personal friend of John Olstein, Osteen is what it should have been, and whom Benny Hinn would say is the finest biblical teacher he had ever heard. I'm just going to pause there right there. If Benny Hinn says that you're the finest biblical teacher, that's not always a great endorsement, okay? Benny is an okay guy, but his, his exegesis on Scripture not always great. Anyway, in this video, during the outbreak of Pearson Gospels of inclusion controversy, remember we talked about that last week, we're all in. That's essentially what that means. Mike Williams would stand up in front of hundreds of congregants of what was still a very Pentecostal church and say the doctrine of accepting Jesus into your heart is not even in the Bible. You will not find one word of it. Okay? We'll go back to that. Actually, no. I think I've got that up there. Hey, you got that scripture up there? I think I put it up there. The whatever's next there, bud. There's no scripture there? What's that? Okay, then maybe I'll, I'll, I may have put it later on. We'll come back to that. Just keep that in mind is all I want you to see. Is the idea of Jesus being in our heart biblical? My jaw dropped to the floor when I heard that. How could he say that in a church on a Sunday? I would ponder that statement for weeks and even months, researching and researching, until one day I uh, had to finally say he's right it's not in there now obviously evangelicals will have issue with this statement until one follows the whole discourse on the challenge to that central doctrine it will be difficult to change someone's mind on that that was the beginning of my entire paradigm shift i would follow mike's teachings closely and it would culminate one day after a church service in milwaukee where mike was speaking in 2004 i would buy all of his materials and he would invite me over as the pastor's home for dinner following the service. By this time, I had conducted extensive research on Paul the Apostle, and Mike and I, in a room full of pastors, would enter into a thorough discussion on Paul's gospel. It was awesome, but it was strange. When I entered the house, I was offered a beer, which I didn't accept, and the others in the discussion were drinking wine, beer, and smoking cigars, all the while discussing the gospel, right? A little different world than where we come from. It was strange to me back then, Chris, I honor my traditions of Word of Faith Pentecostalism and walk through them, but they don't capture fully my experience of God. So just to respond to your questions originally, while I don't consider myself a universalist, the universalist tradition does capture better what I now believe to be true and the work of the cross in that it was a complete work, meaning God did something or he didn't. Did God redeem the whole world or didn't he? If he did, then he did it fully and not partially. This is a fundamental question. For most evangelicals, in my experience, do not make a distinction between saving the world and redeeming or recounseling the world. We, however, make a distinction. We read in Paul in 2 Corinthians that God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos, which would be the world, it's a Greek word there, unto himself. For us, this means that God made the whole world with man in it, one with himself. The redemption of the world is the primary truth. The distinction we make is that God enacts the redemptive work through Christ on the cross. And the degree to which man or a man interacts with the truth he, she enacts through their own effort, salvation through belief or faith. However, for us, his, her lack of faith does not undo the redemptive work of the cross, only their own salvation. Keep in mind that the context of Paul's writing does not contain heaven or hell context. Uh, it does, though, have more of a grace first law or a Jesus first Moses context. For example, I don't live my life trying to get to heaven. Does anybody here live their life trying to get to heaven? I hope not, because we wouldn't either. I am already in heaven. If this is heaven, folks, we were sold a false bill of goods. Our, in Paul's terminology, in Christ. For Paul, there is no differences. We are all one in Christ. So in Thessalonians, Paul is endeavoring the same fledgling church in its infancy. So I would expect to find much of this call to holiness, and that's some of the reference we were going back and forth in. Uh, holiness is Paul would have a high degree of eschatological, which is end times, urgency in his message as he believed the return of Christ was imminent. So for me, it's not surprising to see his Jewishness come out early in his ministry. However, by the time he writes his later epistles to the Romans and Corinthians, we see that he is having a backtrack a little and to make adjustments in his timeline. The epistle of Peter also apologizes for Jesus not returning yet. That's not correct. Now, here we are 2,000 years later and Jesus still hasn't returned. So I wonder what is his eschatological timeline would look like now. Most scholars agree. Anytime that says that, guys, most scholars don't agree, okay? Just so you know. His gospel would be radically different. So when we read all the New Testament books, or the whole Bible for that matter, in context, these truths 
for us seem to make more sense than the traditions in which I was raised. Chris, I am glad I've been able to share my journey with you. It has been a painful one, but yet necessary. I know that is a lot to read. I hope that we continue to have dialogue together. Thank you for, again for listening. And then he sent me a document showing all of these different early church fathers that were what they would be called um, and quotes from them uh, about their universalist trends. There's only one problem with that. He didn't cite a single source. So he made a whole bunch of statements. So I could sit up here today and I could say that Stan Griffin told me that uh, Nebraska is the best football team that's ever existed. In fact, he's jealous that he's not part of that fan club, right? Right. And if I make that statement, I better have something to back it up because otherwise Stan Griffin would stand up and say, that's heresy, somebody's going to hell, right? That's what he would say, okay? But if I had a signed document from it, from him or a recording of him or something that would back it up. However, if Stan died and I make it after the fact, what can Stan do about it? Nothing. Would you believe it? Well, those of you that knew Stan wouldn't, but if you didn't know him intimately, you might believe that, right? So I'm just telling you now what your sermon at your funeral is going to look like, Stan. I'm just giving you a little, little precursor. It's a good day for you, Mr. Griffin. Anyway. But you guys can see all of this stuff. What did he just do here? He began with an idea. He started to question things. And it's okay to question things. But the question came out of a falsehood, out of our camp. Don't go study that stuff. Just ignore it. Because you don't need that. We need to just study spirit-filled doctrine, right? That's so wrong, guys. If what we believe is true, then it will hold up to any scrutiny out of history. And just because somebody in the early church said something or believed something also does not make it true. Because we, we, we go back to the Word. What does the Word say? I don't care what they thought what the Word said 2,000 years ago necessarily if it contradicts the Word itself. But here he is being encouraged to not study. That's a problem. Stay with what you know and you've experienced. Don't study this other stuff. I've read the writings of Luther. I've read a lot of these guys and these early church stuff. I have many of their books. If he had cited some of the sources of guys like Tertullian and Origen and, and even Plato and some of these other guys that he is claiming, I could have gone into those books because I have them and said, well, let's look at this. But even if they did say it doesn't make it right, you see, what he's done is because he had an itching ear, begin to find for himself a teacher that preached what he wanted to hear. That's the church we live in today. So you guys can see, here's a young man that was going to the same school that I was going, that had the same roots that I have, and we went in two different directions in the same course of time. I chose to stick with the Word. I don't care who says it or what they say. If it doesn't line up with the Bible, I throw it out. I don't label them a heretic until they start saying it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're born again. It doesn't matter if you believe in God. Jesus died for all. Did he die for all? Yes, he did. What's our part to play in it? Believe in him. That's it. All you got to do. But that's not where we go. Now, let's go back here for a minute. Okay? Do I not have Ephesians 3 up there? Tell me I do. Who's looking? It's Okay, well, it's, see, it's the tech guy's fault. <laughs> All right, let me read this to you. I meant to put this in here because he made a, he made a statement, right? There is no verse that talks about Jesus asking Jesus into your heart. And that statement is true. Okay, what do you hear? You hear it at these conferences like, you need to ask Jesus in your heart. Well, what does that mean? Is he going to get in there and watch blood pump by? No, he's got better things to do. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. This is Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, writing it down. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. What are we talking about? The inner man, right? The new man. Strengthened in his glory. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints that is the width and length and depth and height. To know that the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God is Christ in your heart. Yes, he is. How do we know that? Because it's in the Bible. Ephesians 3. You know how long it took me to find that verse? 37 seconds. But he didn't want to find that verse. You see, we put on these lenses and these filters, and we're led astray by all of these things. We just need to stick to the Word. Guys, 
years and years i have watched the church and people in it get moved in one way or the other we keep getting in these ditches because some author that we love wrote a book that says something contrary to scripture well he said it and i love him therefore it must be true you know i had a friend of mine because i would call people out on this stuff i'm like guys i mean i'm not saying i'm right on everything i'm certainly not trying to make that case i can be wrong it's happened like twice in my life a third time is liable to happen one of these days all right? But the thing is, is that it's like when it's something that is so obvious, it's, it, it's, and I have a friend of mine, he's like, yeah, but, but he's a nice guy. I'm like, I didn't say he wasn't a nice guy. I'm just saying he's wrong. Let's just start there. Like, it's okay to be wrong and not be a jerk. You can be a nice guy and be wrong, right? Right, Stan? Stan's a nice guy. He cheers for you. <laughs> One of these days, he's going to get Jesus. One of these days. For us Nebraska fans, we've asked Scott Frost into our heart, right? That's what we did. Okay. As a joke, don't throw things at me. All right. Anyway, moving right along. So, guys, that's the problem we have is that we can't call a spade a spade, and we don't have discernment. We don't recognize the things of God because we don't know the Word of God. So we are moved by every wind of doctrine. We're tossed to and fro, and we're moved by movements, especially in the Word of Faith camp. The Spirit-filled camp, the Assemblies of God, whatever you want to call it, we are moved by movements. And I'll give you an example of that in a minute. But I want to introduce you guys to, to another guy, a guy named Ulf Ekman. You ever heard of him? Probably not. He's from Sweden. Nice-looking dude, ain't he? Pastored a church of 20,000 people. Word of faith grew up underneath the teachings of Hagen and all of these other guys that come from that movement. Um, was having a major impact in Sweden. Okay? That's why you've never heard of him. I don't even know if he speaks English. He might. But church of 20,000 people, like that's no small thing. They've had uh, verifiable healings. They have had I've, all sorts of miracles that have taken place. I mean, all sorts of, he was, he was a man of God. And then one day he stood up in his church pulpit and announced to them that he is leaving the church and he's joining the Catholic church. Right. Now, I don't hate Catholics. I'm not against Catholic or any main denomination by any means. I mean, there's, there's good in all of it. But the modern teachings of the Catholic Church are very unbiblical. The worship of Mary and the saints, the prayer for the dead, all the things that the Bible teaches against, and they put church history and doctrine over what the Bible says. That's not good for anybody. If we do that, we've got the same problem. That's why we've got to stick to the Word. But let me read you some stuff. I have a couple of articles here that I want you to see what happened here. Now, how did Ulf end up down this road would be the question. Now, this has been happening more and more. Ulf Ekman, are these, there sacraments in the Word of Life Church? That was the church he pastored. He said, yes. In the beginning, I would say it was very much, a very much low church and free church teaching, which was an emphasis on the Word and on the movement of the Holy Spirit. Step by step, and since maybe 1998, we started to emphasize the importance of Holy Communion. I also wrote a little booklet about it, and a booklet has been spread a lot, actually. I was quite surprised. As a, as a Catholic, I think you would appreciate it because it was a very Catholic view on the Eucharist, which is their communion, okay? They break the, the wafer and all that. What happened to me personally around 1998 is our local congregation grew a lot. It was a phenomenal growth, actually. The Bible grew, the school grew. We started missions work in 1989 into the Soviet Union. We see that there are now around 1,000 congregations that we have relationship that came out of that missions work. So far, so good, right? We like what we hear. They're doing the work of the Lord, right? Then, I came to feel the need for a more dogmatic theological background and more stability. Now, let's, let's break that down for a minute. What does that mean? You see, what happens in our camp, which he is a part of, is that we have a lot of beliefs, but we can't ground them in a lot. Because we don't know. Because we're actually taught, well, you don't have to just read the word. It's the experience side. Which is so great about you guys here at this church. Because we are a unicorn in the Word of Faith movement. I mean, when you've got Janet who's teaching through Daniel on Sunday and doing all these different things that she does, and how grounded in the Word that we are, that's fantastic. But many churches I've been a part of have a lot of beliefs and hold to certain things without ever examining Scripture to see if those things are true. Acts 17.11, where Paul talks about the Thessalonians. So he is looking for this grounding and more stability because it's kind of a free-for-all essentially is what he's getting at i also saw the need for a more understanding of the ecclesial structure ecclesi ecclesia the church ecclesia is how you actually say that the structure the structure of the church okay how is this church structured according to the bible 
pastors, overseers, things like that, right? Deacons, all that. So I was challenged to get to know the essence of the church. We saw the progress and the advancements and were involved in many different projects. Everything was going very well, but there was this dissatisfaction about what is the church really. I couldn't get away from the question. It just kept coming back to me again and again and again. Okay? So he's starting to question the structure of the church. He's looking for something different. Here's another article, same thing. It's telling a little bit about what happens. Ulf Ekman, the former leader of Evangelical Megachurch Word of Life in Sweden, reflected on his first year as a member of the Roman Catholic Church with his wife following his conversion and said that things started to make sense for them after the reception. Now watch this. Ekman revealed that the Blessed Virgin Mary led him and his wife to the Catholic Church and said that loving Jesus means to love the church. Okay? Is that a biblical statement? It was a real experience for us. It was like several missing pieces fell into place, and so much started to make sense. There was a deep sense of arriving that came to us. Ekman explained in an interview that the National Catholic Register, talking about the reception uh, with his wife, Birgitta, Birgitta, I'm not sure you say, into the church on May 21st, 2014. It has been a wonderful year that we will never forget as long as we live. We feel very much at home in the church and are grateful to the Lord. It has also been an intense year due to the ongoing media coverage in Scandinavia. We have gained some wonderful new friends, but like blessed John Henry Newman said, it has also been a time of parting of friends, he added. The former Word of Life leader revealed that the Virgin Mary, mother of Jesus, had a hand in his own conversion. For us, Mary was the first obstacle to overcome, though not the last. And it was through her that we felt a leading toward the church. He said, Ekman added that the hopes be active in a rich Catholic environment where he plans to preach the message that to love Jesus is to love the church. Is that true? To love Jesus is to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's say love the church. But the church, the body of Christ, are your neighbors. Let's say anything about loving the ecclesial structure of the church. As for my, how Catholic tradition reflects in our daily life, my wife and I try to pray the rosary on a daily basis and use a Catholic prayer book for morning devotions. Our daily Bible reading is established since many years, but now we also follow the daily portions for the Mass. Step by step, we also try to take more time for Eucharist adoration, which we find quite amazing, actually. These are quotes from him. This was a huge deal that took place. I had a friend of mine that had followed this guy for years and loved his ministry. I mean, he, was, he couldn't believe it. Why would you go over there? Because they're teaching things that are contrary to the scripture. Well, he obviously had a belief. He began to think, and he found a truth in there. Okay? For those of you that follow Copeland, he's on the same journey right now. He's been off for many, many years, but he is now, he's really propagating the Catholic Church. Very much so. Now, Catholic meaning universal, as in the early church was the universal church. There was one. That's what it was. But... I mean, since the Reformation and stuff like that, I mean, they, they were off before, and they've really gotten off in a lot of things now. But there are good born-again believers in the Catholic Church. Don't get me wrong. But the teaching of the Catholic Church did not get them there. It's because they opened their Bible. You see, these things go on. So how do we get there? How does this happen? Well, guess what, guys? This is happening in our camp. Can it happen to us? Sure it can. Part of the reason that we assemble ourselves together, Paul said don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, is because as iron sharpens iron, we're knocking off those bad ideas. I myself have many pastors, some that I put over me as an authoritative figure who speak into my life, and I will run, if I come up with something that just like, ooh, this new revelation, I will call them and say, I want to run this by you to see if I'm completely out to lunch. Because just like, does it say anything about Jesus being in our heart? Yeah. But sometimes we're not thinking Ephesians 3. Like, boy, I can't think of any scripture that says that. And then we run with it. But when I call some of these guys and they're like, oh, no, this is where it's at. Oh, okay, that makes sense then. You know, th that we have to have that stuff. But we, we don't. We, we, we chase after ourselves for teachers. And so let me show you one more example. This is something that just happened in the, within the last decade. And some of you may know. There's a guy named Todd Bentley. You guys heard of him? Okay, he had a revival down in, I think it was Lakeland, Florida. Okay, now for those of you that were around in the 90s, you guys remember the uh, Brownsville revival that took place down there, went on for many, many years. Um, when you study that, Steve Gray, the pastor that was preaching at this thing, his heart was for those who weren't born again. Every night he was preaching the true gospel, which is that Jesus died for your sins, and you can be forgiven, and you can have a relationship with him, and people would flock to the front. Were there signs and wonders going on as well? Absolutely. But the heart of it was the gospel, and people were being born again. You guys have heard Jim Claudefelter give the testimony when he was down there, and the guy that they picked up 
you know, how the Steve at the end of the service ran all the way across the pews to get to the sinner that was in the back that they happened to bring and led him to Christ. That's a man who's got a heart like Christ, okay? But this guy, this thing was on national TV. People from all over the world was flocking there because there were signs, wonders, and miracles that were going on, or at least claiming to be going on. And this thing was an international phenomenon. It was huge. If you had the Christian television networks and stuff like that, it was on every single night on God TV. They broadcast it all over the place. And so this guy would get up there and he would preach. The problem was is that every once in a while he'd use the Bible. Because I was asked about him. People were saying to me, he's like, man, have you seen this guy? Look what's happening down there, all of this stuff. And so I'd start watching some of the service. Because, guys, let me tell you something. If there's a move of God, amen. I want to be a part of it. I want to pray for it. I want whatever God's got for that. But we've got to use discernment, right? And so all of these signs, wonders, and miracles are going on, but very little of the gospel. And he was, he's, as you can see, he's a big dude. He's covered in tattoos. That has nothing to do with anything. But he's a little gruff, a little, little uh, rough around the edges, if you will. But some of the things that were coming out of his mouth, like, just the way that he was saying them, it's like, man, why? Do you, it, it was drawing more attention to him and less to God. But why are all these people being drawn to this? People that I knew. And, and the fact that I would start to question anything, they were like, you just need to be on board with the, what the Holy Spirit is doing. And I kept telling them, like, that's what I'm trying to do. And so he would start saying things. One of the things that he said, um, he was talking about a service. He was preaching, um, I think he was overseas. And uh, he had his team somewhere in Georgia, I believe. Now, I might be mixing up some of these details because this is from memory, and this is six, eight years ago. And, uh, but he was talking about how he was ministering in, I think it was in England, and his team saw him in the back in Georgia praying for people. And he was talking about how his spirit had left his body and went there and was ministering to people. Okay. Is that biblical? No. People celebrated it, though. They celebrated he would sit there. He was always calling fire from heaven. He told a story how they were in a hotel room. Um, let's see if you guys can pick up on this one. They were in a hotel room. His team was praying before a service, and they were praying for fire to fall, right? You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's what Jesus said. So fire to fall, all of this other stuff, and then uh, they leave, and they go to the service, and they come back, and the hotel had burned to the ground. And coincidentally enough, it, they think it started in their room. So what he's insinuating is the Holy Spirit lit the room on fire and burned it. So hopefully they had good insurance. I mean, but this is what he's getting at. And people are like, oh, man, that's awesome. I'm sorry. We just burned a building to the ground. Like, even if that's true, I don't think that's awesome. Like, let's just say, like, maybe you didn't turn, blow the candle out, but whatever. Then he kept telling this story about this angel that he had that he would see often. Her name was Emma. Do her by name. Now, let me read this to you. The most troubling angel, and this is somebody that was talking about an article, that angel Bentley describes, or the troubling angel Bentley describes in his teaching is a female one named Emma. Keep in mind that the Bible never mentions female angels, right? They're always male. So our assumption is they're only male. Amazingly, he states that he was introduced to this one very special angel by none other than Bob Jones. Now, some of you guys will know him, some of you won't. Um, he's, I think he's still alive, but he, he was a, in the prophetic ministry and stuff like that. I mean, he was a good dude for a long time, but I don't know much about him anymore. One of the infamous prophets of the Kansas City movement in the 80s. That's where he came out of, so just south of us. I say amazingly because Bob Jones has been thoroughly discredited. That's not true. This person is very harsh on the gifts, but I want you to stay with this. Bentley says Jones asked him if he had ever met the angel called Emma. Bentley said that he, not, he had not and then asked who she was. Jones explained that she was the one who empowered him and the other leaders of the Kansas City prophetic movement in the 1980s. And I have no idea if any of this is true, okay, so just take it for a grain of salt. He described her as a mothering type angel. Bentley states that within a few weeks of his encounter with Jones, Emma suddenly appeared to him during a service in North Dakota. He says she floated into a room a couple inches off the floor. Um, and here's a quote from him. She, Emma, glided into the room emitting brilliant lights and colors. Emma carried these bags and began pulling gold out of them. Then as she walked up and down the aisles of the church, she began putting gold dust on people. God, what is happening, I asked. 
The Lord answered, she is releasing the gold, which is both the revelation and the financial breakthrough that I am bringing into this church. Within three weeks of that visitation, the church had given me the biggest offering I had ever received to that point in my ministry, thousands of dollars, thousands, okay? So during the, uh, this visitation, the pastor's wife got totally whacked by the Holy Ghost. She began running around barking like a dog or squawking like a chicken as a powerful prophetic spirit came on her. I don't need to make comment there, do I? Okay, good. Also, as this prophetic anointing came on her, she started getting phone numbers of complete strangers and calling them on the telephone and prophesying over them. Some of this is at least possible. Um, he goes into some of this stuff, other things I'm not going to get into here, but you guys see what I'm saying here. Now, and people were just buying into this hook, line, and sinker. And it's not just people in the church, what we would call lay people, right? Like, there's expectations on you guys for use a sermon, but because I have training and education and stuff, I'm held to a higher standard, so I should be able to see through that more so, right? Well, you would think so, as in people in the, the movement, but they weren't. And there's something called the Revival Alliance Network. Guys like Bill Johnson's a part of this and Rick Joyner, and there's many, many others. So I could name them all, and you would know some of them. Um, these are big teachers. These guys are not necessarily bad guys, okay? Uh, we talk about Bill Johnson a lot. He's a good dude overall, right? So anybody can miss it. But what happened is that because of this move of God that was going on, they uh, decided they wanted to bring him into the fold, and they went down there for a christening. They were going to anoint him the next great prophetic leader. Here's a picture of that. I think I got another picture here. Maybe. No other picture? Are you sure? Oh, these tech guys. If they weren't volunteers. No, I'm just kidding. There's a picture of, of he and his wife standing there with all of these guys laying their hands on him. Now, they... This group had called R.T. Kendall. Do I have a picture of R.T. Kendall? You're kidding me. Man. Yeah, can somebody draw R.T. Kendall? R.T. Kendall is a well-respected man of God. He's from a reformed faith, but he is uh, charismatic. He believes in the gifts and the operation of the Spirit. They asked him to go down there with them. They wanted to christen him. Now, he had been watching this thing on TV, as had many, and he just kept saying, there's an itch I can't scratch. He's like, this thing is not of God. And they asked him three different times, and he absolutely refused to go. This is what he said. This is taken from an article they wrote, but he wrote a book called Holy Fire that I have on my bookshelf somewhere, but I think I loaned it to somebody, so if you have it, I would like it back. Um, but in there, he quoted some different things, but this is from the article. It says, I can think of nothing worse than for God to be powerfully at work, and I miss it, all because I was biased and devoid of discernment. All my life I've waited for an authentic work of God that was not unlike the Great Awakening in Jonathan Edwards' day. In most recent years, I have hoped to see beginning of last day ministries when Isaac succeeds Ishmael, which would precede the second coming. God owes me nothing, and, and it may please him to bypass me entirely in what he chooses to do. Remember the Reformed theology, okay? I'm wondering if passing me by might, let's see, I wondered if passing me by might be happening with regard to Lakeland. I say this because I have become more and more uneasy with what was going on there. It happens that I watched the Lakeland meetings virtually every night for the last three months. I prayed for the evangelists and the people there. I would stand before the TV screen and pray for my own healing. I tried very, very hard to support this strange move, especially when some of my closest friends were endorsing it and urging me to do the same. Furthermore, knowing that God loves to do what makes some of us say yuck, I was prepared all over again for this to happen. What complicated things most of all was that people were apparently being healed. At last count, there were 37 resurrections from the dead. If only one of them had a coroner's death certificate, it would be a very serious matter to say what was going on there was not of God. The fact that ABC News could find no documentary evidence of a miracle was not enough to sway me one way or the other, and it should not be enough to sway you one way or the other either. We should be able to verify these things, but there's a bias in the world. Don't think they're just going to be, yep, this is of God. Okay, we don't need their endorsement. I was even prepared for a while to overlook the claim that the angel Emma is the secret explanation for the special revelations and miracles. I believe in angels. What if Emma were part of the yuck factor? It took a, bit, a little bit of courage for me to endorse the Toronto Blessing, which is back in the early 90s. I have never regretted this. I was going to need courage again to endorse Lakeland. But a funny thing was gri kept gripping me. It, took, it would take even more courage to say that Lake, the Lakeland phenomenon is not of God I have courage to say this? After all, I was reluctantly coming to the conclusion that it was not of God, but would I say it? Yes. It comes to not one thing at the end of the day. Is the Bible true or not? 
if the happenings of Lakeland are of God, then what I have preached for the last 50 years is nonsense. Lakeland was making me say yuck. Yes, but not all of this makes us say yuck is of God. First, never once have I heard a clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Lakeland platform, except when a guest speaker did it. Second, when people were being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and bam, he kept saying that. Because to him, the Holy Spirit was not a person, but a power. It both trivialized the Trinity and the baptism itself. This is serious trivializing. Third, if you were to ask how much of a fear of God and conviction of sin emanated from these services on a scale of 1 to 100, I would say zero. In 94, I addressed a group of prominent evangelical leaders in London, having been given to the, the subject of biblical features of revival. I looked at my notes to see how Lakeland measured up, not even close. A great awakening would, among several other things I do not have space to go into here, demonstrate the centrality of biblical preaching. Preaching itself in Lakeland has been minimal, and what preaching there has been calls more attention to angels, miracles, and manifestations than to Jesus who died on the cross. I'm sorry, but my heart is sick that these meetings have excited so many good people. They are indeed good people, very sincere. Many of them have been a part of previous moves of the Spirit, and since church history has taught us that those who are in the middle of a move of the Spirit often lead the way in opposing the next work of the Spirit, some did not want to be seen in doing this. I can understand that. When one is reported to have been to the third heaven, as the main evangelist of Lakeland stated, that being him, Bentley, and told not to preach Jesus because everybody already knows about him, but rather angels, which people know little about, I can only call this another gospel as in Galatians 1. I would go to the stake for, stake for the gospel of salvation, which Paul preached, that emphasized reliance solely in the precious, precious blood of Christ. I would certainly not go to the stake for the Lakeland message, and I would not be afraid to face God if I did. These are just some of the things. Now, I was going to show you guys some video clips, but for time's sake, I, I didn't do that. Um, and frankly, it's getting harder and harder to find the unadulterated clips because somebody has, they always take them and edit them, and, and I don't, I don't want to do that. So here's the problem. What happened here? This dude was out there. These guys come down. They lay their hands on him. This is the next great man of God. Two weeks later, it comes out that he's having an affair on his wife with his assistant. How did people of the prophetic network miss that? No discernment. If they're going to call themselves prophets, they should pick up on something like that. Can a prophet miss it? You betcha. Have we all been, because of somebody we liked, maybe looked past some things, not thinking it through, and that may be the case here, guys. I'm not throwing them under the bus. Those are some, there are some good people in that group, okay? But they should have caught on to that, but they weren't using discernment because they're more into the signs, wonders, and miracles than the author of the signs, wonders, and miracles. We preach healing, not the healer. We preach the signs, not the sign giver. That's the problem here. Kendall refused to go. They asked him on three different occasions, would you please go? He said, no, I cannot endorse this. Okay? So they're there. He comes out. Then, so he steps down and goes underneath this ministry for a restoration. He marries the other woman. And about four months later, they have him back up on stage. Now, how do you do that? If you're legitimately sticking to Scripture, how do you do that? Because they weren't interested in what Scripture had to say. And there's, he's still out there today. They're still endorsing. I just saw a video of Bill Johnson endorsing him. Now, Bill will say, listen, the guy screwed up, and, but I believe he's repented of his sins and all of that. Does that mean the guy could never be in ministry again? Absolutely not. But if he's preaching this same stuff, he's not even preaching the Word. We chase after things. Now, look what it says in the Word, guys, and I'm almost done. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So if you're supposed to test the spirits, why didn't we test the spirits? What do we test them against? The Word. How do we know anything, guys? I mean, when I had somebody tell me that we don't need our Bible anymore because the Holy Spirit was sent and He'll lead us into all truth, my question then was like, well, how did you know that? From the Word. Because it says it. Look at 2 Corinthians 11. Oh, that you would... Bear with me a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for the godly, with godly jealousies, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest ha somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now remember, what did the serpent do? Has God really said? 
And what are we seeing here? We see this all the time. Is that really what God said? Oh, God, I know this is what you said. Let me tell you what you meant. For if he comes, he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. In other words, be prepared for this. You've got a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus died, buried, resurrected for our sins according to the scriptures. Okay? Anything other than that is a different gospel. For I consider that I am not at all in fear of the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? He didn't charge him for his time. He didn't have an honorarium, right? He didn't have a seven-page contract that said, if you want Paul to come in here and preach, I need only green M&Ms, and my water better be 34 degrees on the nose. I robbed other churches, taking the wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. So in other words, he's being supported by these other churches to be able to go to the church in Corinth. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burdensome to you. And so I will keep to myself as the truth of Christ is in me. No one shall stop me from this boasting in the region of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows. Well, watch this. But what I do... I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. They, we are as in the apostles. For such are false apostles, they're deceitful workers, they're transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, which means they're not, right? And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of life. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, who, whose end will be according to their works. How do we discern this? The word. If they're not preaching the gospel, we got a problem. And I don't care who they are. I don't care how long they've been around. I don't care how much I love them in the past. Don't lack of love for them but I will not endorse their teaching. Guys, there are a lot of great books that I would love to have you guys read or videos that I would love to show you and stuff, but by doing so, I cannot endorse the minister any longer because of where they've gone, and therefore I don't put that stuff out. Now, you may think, well, that would never happen here. Do you know when I first got here, we have the library in the back, and upstairs was just a ton of books, piles and piles, and I was kind of going through them, trying to clean them up, and I found one of Todd Bentley's books up there. That means it came from somebody in here that they donated at the church. Discernment. We have to have it. You see, this is the thing, and this is where we're going. Because you can see, it's his ministers, right? They're, they're transforming themselves into ministers of righteousness. They seem good. They're nice guys. Man, they're signs, wonders, and miracles. What did, that, what did Jesus say? Like, well, we cast out demons in your name, and we heal the sick in your name. He says, well, get away from me because I never knew you. They were ministers of the enemy is we have to have discernment. When, when something doesn't sound right, you may not know why it's wrong, but just know that it's like, it doesn't pass the sniff test. You see, this is the key to understand because these ministers are out there now. The enemy works through them, and we can be a part of them if we don't stick to the word. Look at Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your re reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, okay, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, well, why do we need to do that? That you may discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we have to transform our mind to the word of God so that we can discern those things that are good. That is why we have a movement in a church, especially with young people, where sin is no longer sin. God made you this way. It's okay. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we were just told we need to renew our minds so that we can discern, and now we know what we discern with, the word of God, right? Last one, Hebrews 5.12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk 
and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Reason of use. In other words, we don't just hear stuff. We are doers of the word. And through that, we mature, and now we can discern what is good and what is evil. That's not just good and bad. That's what's good and what's almost good. What is the will of God? See, this is where we're going next, guys, is this discernment comes through the word. This is why we hammer on it so much. But we have to be able to take the thoughts of God. If it, it separates soul and spirit, your thoughts and God's thoughts, good and evil, right? My ways are not his ways. This is where we've got to get to. We need discernment. You guys with me? You see how important this is? It's so easy to get sucked in. We've got to know the word. 